Hello, and welcome to the Christ Church Cathedral Podcast. This is the sermon from our past Sunday, recorded live from the cathedral. We hope these words will really speak to your heart and mind. Well, in our Gospel reading today from Luke, Jesus speaks of wars and insurrections, but says, do not be terrified. Nation will rise against nation, earthquakes, famines, and plagues, deathly portents, and great signs from heaven. These things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Phew, that's a relief. I think every generation would feel like we've lived in these times, right? And it feels like that now with plagues and still wars. And sadly, according to the Council of Foreign Relations, global conflict tracker to think we have such a thing, there are currently 27 ongoing conflicts worldwide. World, worldwide. Israel and Palestine, Haiti, Ethiopia, Yemen, looming catastrophe in Afghanistan, Myanmar's deepening political crisis, to name a few, and of course the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We take the opportunity each November the 11th to remember, to give meaning, to pass sacrifice, and acknowledge the courage of those presently serving. And we think especially of those who suffer PSTD. And I have a cousin in England who did two tours in Afghanistan who is still plagued by the memories and relives them all the time, as we know many people who have served do. So, they shall not grow old, as we are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Who are these people that we remember? Now they are mostly faceless, brave men and women who went to war and many never returned. And those who did rarely would speak of their experiences but we pledge that we will remember them. 1914 to 1918 was World War I, and it was said to be the, world, the war to end all wars. So if you can come to my house, which you're more than welcome, um, we have this cozy little den uh, we call the library. Sounds a lot grander than it is, but we have a library there. <laughs> and um, anyway, over the fireplace, there is an enlarged photograph. I had thought to bring it with me, but anyway, I flew out of the house as usual this morning and left it behind. Anyway, this, it's from a, a World War I little photograph that they did of soldiers in their uniform, and it's enlarged. And it is my husband Rick's grandfather, who he never knew, Charles Gower Williams. He emigrated to Canada from Wales in 1910 and he was working uh, with the horses and trams for the TTC in Toronto. And many of those trams were converted into recruiting offices. And um, one day in August of 1915, in went Charlie and he enlisted. Now, looking for him, he spent about a year in Canada doing training. 
And many of the movies and things I've watched, people sign up and next thing you know, they're marching out of town and no training whatsoever. So they would train in High Park and they would do things like marches to Niagara Falls and they even marched to Halifax, if you can imagine. And lots of training. And then finally in May of uh, 1916, went on a ship, a train to Halifax and then a ship to England and landed in Liverpool and then went on to, to France to serve at the front. So anyway, he was a gunner, and um, we know that in uh, June of 2016, he was at the front, just south of Ypres. And then a couple of weeks later, they sent him on a three-week training course with mortars. So they had these kind of like mini little cannons, is how they looked to me, and the gunners would put those mortars in and then they would fire them at the enemy. So these mortars of this you know, new equipment that they had were called toffee apples. So they would load in the toffee apples, but sadly they would often just explode. And this is what happened to Charlie. He was killed by his own gun because uh, on July, probably the 23rd or something, uh, his, he was loading them and it exploded. And he was in a hospital for about a day and a half the military records tell us all this. And then on July 25th, which is actually St. James's Day, uh, in 1917, he did die, succumbed to his injuries and died. But the family were told how brave he was and that he was a gunner and he knew what he'd signed up for. So he'd actually lasted about 15 months at the front when many soldiers in that role only ever lived about six months because the fact is, you know, they would uh, be killed by their own uh, explosion of their own gun. So anyway, so Charlie never came home. And when he enlisted, he had a son, Harvey, who was 15 months old. And when he went overseas, um, Harvey was two. That's Rick's dad. And that was it. He never came back. So his wife, Mary, uh, never remarried. She was a widow with a little pension. And her and another widow kind of made a house together and they raised their two sons more like brothers. And that's how they managed to live after the war. And so that was it. So Harvey was an only one. And when World War II came around, he enlisted, but he wasn't allowed to serve overseas because they wouldn't have that happen again in a family where an only son was killed. So he was out in uh, Newfoundland uh, as a military. He was a police officer, so they made him military police. So that's how the sort of generations continue there. And um, anyway, when I was first ordained and we would do Remembrance Day services, I can remember um, preaching about Remembrance Day and looking at everybody and thinking like, I actually wasn't born and a lot of these people were. Why am I telling them about Remembrance Day when I was born in the 50s? I know that's shocking. You thought it was the 1970s, but I was <laughs> actually born in the 50s. So after that, I made it my life's work, if you like, to find out who the veterans were. I mean, we used to be able to have the veterans come and troop the colors and wear their medals, and it was just so beautiful and moving. And I loved that we had Eduardo, thank you, and the trumpet and everything this morning. It just really touches my heart. And anyway, so I would go around, and it was really hard. It was like a year's worth of work 
to convince them to share stories, right? Because how many people we know who go to war and come back and they, they just don't want to talk about what they experienced. Anyway, some of the ones that came to mind that um, I wanted to remember them uh, was, um, well, Charlie, we will remember him that I mentioned already, and then um, these two real characters in my congregation, Len Fanstone and Stan Atkinson. So they decided they would do it as long as they would do it together. So they came up like a tag team. So Len Fanstone's like six feet tall, and Stan Atkinson was this like 100 pounds dripping wet guy about my height. And they, they go up to the lectern, and they're giving their talk. And um, they were, anyway, as much as it's a sad story, they were pretty funny. So Len was a rear gunner in a Lancaster. So apparently, it's a tiny little space. So even just him describing how he had to get in there and could barely get out at six feet tall. And, uh, and often, because that's who they would try to take out, right? They know the, the fire is coming from the back of the plane, and they try and get the, the rear gunner first. Anyway, he made it through the war, but he described this time when they would fly the Lancaster really, really low. I mean, sometimes they still, there's one from Hamilton Museum, right, that still flies over. If you've ever seen that, it just makes you stop wherever you are and go out and look and see this huge airplane going over. Anyway, they would fly, he would say, they were touching the top of the trees, you know, they were flying. Whether that's true, or not, I don't know, but he might have romanced the story a bit. And they would tip out these boxes full of chaff. So he had one that he kept as a souvenir, and it was kind of like a foil box, and it had its own little parachute. But they would literally tip out like cases and cases and cases, and it was to jam the radar so then the bombers could come in and you know drop the bombs. And uh, so he would tell his story, and Stan, he was a radio guy, and he was stationed in England, and he said, sorry, I keep breathing on this thing. Um, he said that, um, you know, they would still have fun. They would go to the pub, and, you know, he was safe sort of in England where he was, but fixing radios or doing whatever he did with technical stuff. Um, three of them were going to uh, dance in the town the one night, so they got themselves spruced up. They're walking down the lane to the village when these Spitfires kind of came out of nowhere. So they were like, in the ditch, boys. So they jumped in the ditch, and Stan said, the moral of the story is, if it's been raining, don't be the first guy in the ditch. Because <laughs> he didn't get many dances that night because he was covered in mud. So anyway, so we will remember them, Stan and Len. Another lady came to me, uh, Valerie Williams, and she said, um, there was another story, you know, about the people who lived through the Blitz. She'd lived in London and was a, you know, a girl in wartime, but she remembers the sirens going off and them having to go down into the shelters and spend the night kind of huddled together. And she remembers rationing and, um, you know, just sort of what it was like to live through the war. I'm, I remember my mom telling me she was born, my mom um, was born in 1931, so she's, yeah, you know, 10-ish kind of thing during the war. And one time this little bar of chocolate got put through the letterbox in their house, and she was one of six girls and, and a boy in their family. But she saw the chocolate first. So she spied the chocolate, and she thought, right, keeping that. 
So when she was alone, she snuck the chocolate and boy, she enjoyed it, it tasted good. But sadly for her, it was X-Lax. So you know what that does. <laughs> so anyway, we will remember them, Valerie and my mom, Margaret, and their experiences. And another woman in my congregation was called Simone. She is about this big and a tiny little thing. And she was from Belgium and she still had a really thick accent and she talked really, 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 really quickly and you could barely understand a word she said. And so I went for weeks ahead of time and interviewed her and then I go back the next week and say, okay, is this right? No, that's not what I said. And I'd write it again and we finally got her story right so that I could read it because if she'd have got up and talked, we wouldn't know what the story was. But little bits I remembered from Simone's story are she would have been like 12, 13, uh, and she lived in a port town. Sadly, I've lost my notes, so I couldn't remember the accurate details, but the point is, she would go to the hairdressers and they would lend her a magazine or a book. She would take that home and read it, and then they would say, but deliver it. now take it to somebody else's house and drop it off there. And what she was actually doing was passing messages for the resistance at like 12, 13 years old. Or they might say, could you take a stroll down by the docks and see what's going on down there? So a young girl at that age was innocent enough and she could go for this stroll by the docks. And if the soldiers saw her, they'd just say, get out of here, you know, they're not likely to um, reach de detain her and question her. And she could still find out what was going on and she would bring those messages back. Anyway, one day, loud pounding at the front door and the Gestapo came to her house and they said um, you know you must report tomorrow or Friday to our offices well she was terrified because her parents didn't know what she'd been doing carrying messages and doing this work for the resistance and she thought that's it I'm going to end up you know thrown in prison or sent to a camp anyhow um, her dad said, I'll go with you. They went down, reported, and they said, we've had a report that a radio has been heard playing in your house listening to the BBC, and it wasn't allowed, right? And Simone had gone up to the attic, and she would put on the radio, but like so quietly, put her ear right up like this, and she could listen to the BBC news and find out what was going on in the war and what was happening elsewhere in Europe. And they just gave her a telling off, and she got to go home. And so that was a big relief. But she cried when she told me in, in the sharing of these stories that she later found out it was her dad who had actually reported her. So, you know, we hear that in the scripture, right? That families will turn on families. But in, in that kind of wartime, he was worried that the whole family would be punished, right? So Simone and Valerie, we will remember them. Anyway, there's lots of stories like that. Now I'll see what I decided I would tell you about. Um, oh, I know what I was going to tell you. Um, so back to Charlie, in 2017, Rick and I went on a trip to England, and it's just always been that they've never met this grandfather and obviously a big enough impression that he has this big photograph up in the house. 
So I said, well, you know, we're going to be in London anyway. Why don't we just take the channel, a fast train, and we'll go to Vimy and go to the memorial. His parents had been at one point in their life, but they could never find a name written on the memorial, and they kind of came away disappointed. So Rick and I went and, um, you know, somehow found our way from the station and got a cab, and it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, has anybody been to Vimy and seen it? Like, it's, it's really quite breathtakingly beautiful. So anyway, I mean, it wasn't my grandfather, it was his grandfather, and you know, we're chit-chatting, and, and then you kind of come to this long, long path that's, I don't know, it feels like it might be four or five times longer than this, and the monument's at the end, and by some stroke of luck, there was hardly anybody there, and it was the 100th anniversary of Vimy, and there'd been, you know, the Prime Minister had been there a few days before, but Rick was like, no, I don't want to go to that, I, I just want to be there quietly. So anyway, we're chatting and walking and talking, as you can imagine, I would be talking. And um, just like, I don't know, maybe as close as the font to us at the monument, I just burst into tears. And I looked at him, and he was crying too. And we just fell silent because it was like, it, it was almost like you should take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, you could feel that you know, 60,000 people lost their lives there, and just the momentous feeling that this place still holds was incredible. And it's beautiful and green, and even though there's great big divots where bombs had landed and there's, you know, still dangerous areas, now it looks like a park that it wasn't. It was just mud and a horrible, cold and awful place when people like Charlie Williams would have been there. Anyway. Here it is, all these years later, and we will remember them. But another piece of a story I can only tell you about, because it's not my story again, is, you know, in September of this year, our very own Elizabeth Wensley, where are you, Elizabeth? She's still out directing traffic? Anyway, talk to her about it, because she went to Holland, to the Netherlands, and did a pilgrimage called In Our Father's Footsteps. And there were about 90, Canadian descendants of, of Canadian soldiers, well, from all over the place, who went on this trip that should have taken place on the 75th anniversary, so it was now 77 years, thanks to COVID. And they actually walked literally 60 kilometers, averaging about 20 kilometers a day of what their um, soldiers would have walked um, before. And in each little village, there were, they were greeted by dignitaries and people. Like, the people of the Netherlands are still just so grateful to Canadians. And one highlight was that there was a tea with Princess Marguerite, who was actually born in Ottawa in 1943. And Elizabeth was sitting right beside her, so that was a thrill. But it wasn't like that every day for them. It poured buckets of rain, and then they were stood listening to the mare in the rain, and it was cold and damp. But she said, you know, there was no grumbling or complaining because they knew this is what it had been like, and, and worse still, for their, um, their you know, her father and, and other people's uh, grandparents. So this group of 90 went and did this uh, wonderful pilgrimage. I mean, isn't that incredible to think that we will remember them? and that that kind of um, commitment to, to go and put your time and energy into that, just to sort of feel what it might have been like for, for those um, soldiers in that day. So, you know, um, 
I wanted to give you his name properly too. So it was a reflective pilgrimage and a tribute of freedom, peace, and friendship to honor these veterans. Uh, Lieutenant Roland James Wensley, we will remember him. So I, I have read, as many of you have if you're on social media, so many lovely photographs posted of friends of mine and acquaintances where they have said this week, you know, this was my dad, this was my grandfather. And one such story was a friend of mine whose um, uh, grandfather was called Frederick Alfred Taylor, who did return from World War I. And he went on to father six children, one of which was my friend's uh, mother, who, grandmother rather, who was born in 1919. He was grandfather to 20, so he had six children. They produced 20 children. And then they had then 46 great-grandchildren, and they can't even count the great-great-grandchildren. That was the difference of the legacy he left. And when I read that, by contrast to Charlie Williams, who had one child and, and never came home, it just made me think of the generations lost, the people who weren't even born um, because of that. And so, um, and not to mention six million Jews that went to the gas chambers and all of their gifts lost and descendants that weren't born. So for those unborn souls, we will also remember them. So today's gospel brings us to the end of Jesus' teaching in the temple. His prediction of the destruction of the temple didn't come about until about 40 years after that time. But Jesus uses this as a teaching moment to his followers of the ordeal that they will need to endure and that their perseverance will be rewarded. So we do have hope in a bright future despite our repeated inhumanity throughout the centuries. And so I'm going to paraphrase the prayer that I've read to you before, the whole prayer, but this is just a little piece, and it was written by Rabbi Jack Reimer. <clears throat> we cannot merely pray to you, O God, to end war, for we know that you have made the world in a way that man must find his own path to peace within himself and his neighbor. Therefore, we pray to you instead, O God, for strength, determination, and willpower to do instead of just to pray, that our land and world may be safe and that our lives may be blessed. Amen. I'll clo close with this little prayer as we remember them. Lord Jesus Christ, by your own three days in the tomb, you hallowed the graves of all who believe in you and so made the grave a sign of hope that promises resurrection even as it claims our mortal bodies. Eternal rest grant to them, O oh Lord. We will remember them. Amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Christ Church Cathedral. Audio editing and original theme by Eduardo Farias. We hope you join us again soon. Have a blessed day.